Time is a weird thing. Maybe there's no better day to realize that than on a day when we all across the country arbitrarily set our clocks forward, thus making us either time travelers or time lords. I'm not sure which of the things is happening, but we controlled time this morning. Actually, I haven't actually set a clock in a few years. My phone does it for me, which actually makes me far more nervous than I used to be, even though for my entire life, as long as I can remember, any time we change the clocks, whether it's the good one where we fall back or the bad one where we spring forward, it's a miracle that I ever sleep because it makes me a nervous wreck. I always have all these fail-safes set all around the room. I'm not really sure why I'm this neurotic about it, but I am, and it drives me absolutely crazy. But think about how arbitrary that is. We just all moved our clocks, and then we'll just continue on for the next six months, just like things are normal. But even how we measure time itself is is strange, because our day is based on, the amount of time in one day is based on the amount of time it takes for the earth to spin around on its axis, which apparently happens very quickly. And then our year is based on the time that it takes for our earth to take one revolution around the sun, which again, relatively speaking, happens very fast. And so if you think about it, every second that we exist is just a little ticking reminder that we are moving so quickly that were the world to stop, we would all be hurled directly into the sun. And that's how a lot of us act when it comes to time anyway. That we are on this ticking time bomb that if everything doesn't happen at the exact moment when it's supposed to, our lives are going to either literally or metaphorically hurl themselves into the sun. And we could try to blame this on social media. We could try to blame this on fast food. We could try to blame this on all the modern conveniences we have that enable us to get everything immediately. We get our news immediately. We get our food immediately. We can communicate as quickly as we could ever desire to communicate. All of this happens so quickly. And so we could say, well, maybe this is just a modern construct that people living in the 21st century, especially in a technologically advanced country, maybe this is just a problem that we have. But if that were the case, there would have been no reason for Jesus to preach the sermon that he preaches in Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 26. You see, the reality is this problem of now has been something that's plagued humanity forever. It's always been easier to spend than it is to save. It's always been easier to act impulsively and irrationally than it has been to think things through. It's much easier to be frustrated than it is to be patient. And everything around us and everything throughout history has programmed that into our minds. There's just something around us at all points in time saying, hey, you need to get everything that you can get right now. Act now. Don't delay. Time is passing you by. Carpe diem. Seize the moment. Don't miss out because if you blink for a second, everything could be gone. You could have missed your opportunity. And so we try with everything inside of us to consume as much as we can, as quickly as we can, because we have this fear that we aren't going to be satisfied. That we are going to live our lives and there's going to be something that we miss that is going to make our lives meaningless. But then in comes Jesus, and he starts preaching a message that's not only countercultural, but it's counterintuitive to our very nature. 
he comes in and he starts to preach that now is not the most important thing. Now it matters. Now is important. But now is not where you find your satisfaction. There is something that is coming. There is a world that is coming. There is a life that is coming that brings with it a satisfaction that will make everything else pale in comparison. But when Jesus starts talking about this satisfaction, we might expect him to talk about the silly, frivolous, or even sinful things that we rely on and fill our time with and try to find satisfaction in. But what makes this such a hard sermon to process is that Jesus is talking about not finding satisfaction in the very basic needs of our lives. And so today we're going to see Jesus continue to unveil the upside down nature of the kingdom of God by shaking our priorities, by giving us an eternal perspective on time and helping us to realize how that changes, what we think is important and what matters. And then we also see in the midst of all that Jesus taking the social order of the world and turning it upside down by declaring those who are often looked at as oppressed and neglected and calling them blessed. And so today we're going to look at Mark or excuse me at Luke's account of the beatitudes. And then also this addition that Mark or the, excuse me that Luke has here calling us to be very aware and very alarmed by those moments in our lives where we try to find satisfaction in anything other than Christ and his kingdom. And so we're going to be in Luke, no matter how many times I call him Mark. We're going to be in Luke chapter 6, verses 20 through 26. Please excuse if I have to go to my water bottle a lot. If I'm going to try, if I cough, to mute myself before it happens. Unless I notice that you guys are starting to fall asleep because of the hour of sleep that you lost. And then I will cough directly in the microphone and it will be loud and startling and a little awkward. And we'll all feel weird after it, but we'll all be awake. But let's read Luke chapter 6. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you when you are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when people exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who you are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. And woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. (coughs) Father God, we do love you and we thank you for your word. And God, we thank you for the truth that Christ brings in this sermon. God, we just confess now the times that we try to find our satisfaction anywhere other than you. God, we confess the times when we forget that because of what Christ has done for us, that we have an eternity where we will be fulfilled and completely satisfied in ways that we could never imagine or dream. And so, Father, forgive us for the times when we put more priority on the now than we do the later. 
God, I pray this morning that you would teach us to see our lives like Scripture teaches us, that they matter, that it's important, but it's not something to be clung to. That whether we find success or tragedy or pain or wealth or anything in between, that God, our satisfaction doesn't come from our circumstances and it doesn't come from our status, but it comes from our Savior. Father, we just thank you for the kingdom message that is good news to all people, that turns the social order of the world upside down, that shakes our priorities and rattles our perspective. As we look at it this morning, God, draw us closer to you and help us to know more about what it means to live as members of your kingdom. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Jesus begins this sermon with a pretty amazing claim. Verse 20 says that he lifted up his eyes to his disciples and says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now throughout time, and the same is probably true right now, you haven't necessarily needed to see someone's bank account or take, a whole, or take your eyes on someone's treasury to know their wealth. Usually, you will be able to tell what someone has and what sort of means that someone has based on what they have. In the ancient world, it could be something like how much land that you have, what your house looks like, how many servants that you have working for you, how you're dressed or what kind of jewelry that you're wearing, or what you don't have, or what you're not able to afford, or what you're not able to wear. And for Jesus' audience, for most of the people that Jesus found himself speaking to as he was going from town to town preaching the good news of the gospel, for his audience, most of the time, their material poverty was very obvious by their lack of stuff. And so they would have been very aware of the differences between their lives and the lives of those who had much. And in that system, especially in our system today and in our world today, usually when people who have very little see someone who has a whole lot, they would consider that person to be blessed. And especially in the ancient world, the stuff that you had determined not only your status in life, but how you were seen by the world around you and the amount of power and opportunity that was available to you. And so now imagine the surprise of the people listening to the sermon when Jesus begins by calling their low estate blessed. Something that they would have maybe considered a curse for their entire life and maybe for generations before that. Now Jesus walks in with this amazing opening line to the sermon because you always want at the beginning of a sermon something to grab everyone's attention. This will do it. Because Jesus walks in and he says, blessed are the poor for yours is the kingdom of God. But then as Jesus lays out these Beatitudes, there's a parallel in the next set of verses. And so if we put these two together, Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. 
Now, of course, when we take this passage of Scripture and when we put it in line with the rest of the context of, of the Bible, we know that Jesus isn't simply making a reference to anyone who happens to have money or happens to have material wealth. But Jesus is calling out this warning to people who have money or have material wealth, who use that money and material wealth to build their own kingdom. Or for anyone who has in their heart the desire to achieve some sort of material wealth so that they can find that satisfaction or consolation. He's calling attention to that belief that if I just have enough money, then I'll be able to accomplish everything I want. Then I'll be able to be whoever I want. Then I can build my own kingdom. And so Jesus says, be careful where you put the emphasis in your life. Be careful what kind of kingdom you're trying to build. Because just like time, money is a strange thing. I don't know a whole lot about economics. I certainly would not say that I'm an economic scholar. I don't really, I listen to Planet Money uh, as a podcast, and I feel like that's important. It's about 15 minutes of little nuggets about economics in the world, and so I'm a little better now than I used to be, but I don't really know much about economics or economic policies or politics or anything along those lines. But I do know that there was a point in time in our history where we were on a gold standard. So whatever amount of gold our country had, that's how much money our country had, and that we are not on that anymore. And I don't know what we are It's some sort of trust thing. I don't know how it all works at this point. But I do know that it sounds very arbitrary. And that the value of our dollar goes up and down based on world markets and how things are spending. And so the value of a dollar bill actually changes and fluctuates kind of on a daily basis. And that seems horrifyingly arbitrary to me. But even if we were still on the gold standard, that's arbitrary, right? Because at one point in time, somebody somewhere decided that because gold is really pretty and there's not as much of it as there is, say, aluminum or something. I don't know what another rock is at the current moment because my head is full of allergies. But there's, there's a lot of these other kind of rocks, like the ones that are under my soil all over my house so I can't plant really anything at all because my yard is just rock with dried dirt on top of it. There's a lot of that rock, so it's not very expensive, but my yard is not built on top of gold. And so when you find gold, it's of great value. And so somebody thought, I like this rock more than this rock, and so this one must be worth something more. And so material wealth in that sense, has always been something incredibly arbitrary. And something that arbitrary is by nature incapable of bringing actual satisfaction. Because, yeah, you can have a lot of it. You can have more gold than Fort Knox. I don't know if that's thing, a thing that people still say, but I've heard that before. I don't even know if Fort Knox actually still exists. I, assure, I assume it does. I haven't been there, and I'm assuming there's gold inside of it. But just in case there's not, you know the idea of what I'm trying to say here. You could have more gold than kings and queens and emperors and people all over the world, and then one day someone can decide, I don't really like the color yellow, and maybe all of a sudden now it's completely worthless and empty. The same is true for the possessions that money can buy. We can have land, we can have houses, we can have clothes, we can have jewelry, we can have all of the finer things in life, cars and all of this stuff, but it's fleeting. And even if you have it your whole life, even if you have it for every moment of your life, one day you're going to die and all your stuff is going to belong to somebody else and it's not going to mean anything anymore. And so Jesus is warning us here saying, be careful. 
If you start to determine that this, this money, that this material wealth is something that can bring you satisfaction, it can't. But then to the poor, Jesus says, blessings on you who are poor because I am bringing into this world a gift that money can't buy. What I'm bringing in and the good news of the gospel is not something that you have to be able to afford. It's not some station in life that you have to reach, but it's something to free to anyone who would come and to anyone who would trust in me. And the reward and the benefit and the satisfaction, the consolation of my kingdom is much greater than anything you could ever imagine. He says, yours is the kingdom of God. And there's an implied question in what Jesus is saying here when we look at the beatitude versus the woe, when we look at the blessing versus the warning. We have to ask ourselves the question, which kingdom has more value? Is it a kingdom that's based on arbitrary things that can come and that can go? Is it a kingdom that's based on things that can rot and fall apart and things that, to quote old cliches, you can't take with you when you die? Or does the kingdom that is impenetrable and unperishable, the kingdom that cannot be shaken, the kingdom that has a king that will never end, the kingdom that lasts for all of eternity and gives us the reward that comes from the God who created the heavens and the earth, does that one have more value? You see, what Jesus is saying here is that whether you have more than you could ever need or barely enough to get by, be careful not to find your consolation in things that rust. And be careful where you store up your treasures. We see this in the life of Paul who says, I know what it's like to have much. I know what it's like to have little. And Paul went back and forth between those things a lot. And he said, it doesn't matter whether I have more than I need or less than I need because I have Christ and it's Christ who gives me strength. And so through him, I can do whatever I need. And through him, I find my satisfaction. You see, Jesus is reminding us here that the entrance into the kingdom is free. And yes, the cost of following Jesus may be great in this life. But the inheritance that comes through him is something greater than our wildest expectations. And so Jesus says, blessed are the poor, for you are rich in God's kingdom. He warns us to be careful where we build our kingdoms and to trust in his so that no matter what we have, we can find satisfaction, that we can have peace, remembering that our life is not so important that we need to hoard all we can now. But this inspires us and calls us to be generous, to be patient, and even in the midst of times where things are very thin, to trust in the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and remember that he has an inheritance for us that is amazing. Next, Jesus says, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And then the corresponding woe says in verse 25, Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. In preparing for the sermon, I read a little bit about tapeworms. I remember my whole life when hearing my dad preach, anytime he told kind of weird, gross stories, he would always make the notation that that would buy him about 10 or 15 extra minutes because if it could be gross enough, you won't be very hungry. And so then that could give you a little extra time that I'd be able to preach. So this might be one of those things because I read about one particular woman 
who somehow found a way to buy a tapeworm because it's, you know, 2018, and I guess you can just do that. And so she bought a tapeworm as a means to lose weight. Just a little PSA here. Don't do that. First off, it's weird because you're eating a worm. And I don't know what tapeworms look like. I'm assuming they're very small and microscopic for a little while. But it's also kind of icky, and so I don't want to talk to you about it. But also, there are really bad side effects that can come from eating a tapeworm. Because in case you don't know, this is what tapeworms do. They're little parasites. And a parasite is a smaller organism that feasts off a larger organism. And so that's what a tapeworm does. And it's got these little hooks in its face And when you eat it, the hooks in its face attach to your intestines. (laughs) And then it starts to eat your food because it's gross. And it wants to eat food that you've already eaten. And that's disgusting. Every day I have to check my plate and make sure that Lucy has not taken something out of her mouth because she has a tendency to do that when she doesn't like things and puts it on my plate because she has a tendency to do that because I don't know why she does that part. But I have to make sure that I am not eating food that she has already eaten because that would gross me out and I'd feel really weird about it. But the tapeworm apparently decides this is the way I want to live. And so he attaches himself to your intestines and then he starts to eat your food. And then he gets bigger, and then he gets bigger. And this just keeps happening until this tapeworm can be upwards of 30 feet long. (laughs) So weird. And so what happens is, is you eat, and then this tapeworm is just stealing your food from you before you have the chance to process it. Before you have the chance to reap the benefits of nutrients from your food, this tapeworm is taking and consuming all that because he is a jerk and he is a parasite and he doesn't care if you live or die. He just wants to eat your stuff and so you can eat and you can consume and never be satisfied. Jesus, as he's talking about hunger here, makes us aware of a spiritual parasite in our lives as well. Throughout history, being well-fed has often been a sign of being well-off. And so by nature, by the way that we understand things, in many cultures, being very well-fed and being very robust was a sign that you had great wealth, and because of that, you must be living a very blessed life. And in many cultures, including our own, there is often a very large gap between the hungry and the healthy. And oftentimes it's wider than we think, and it involves much more than just empty stomachs. There can be a a spiritual and an ideological and philosophical gap between the way that we think. The philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, in his book, The Confessions, when he's given a little bit of an autobiography of his life, tells a story about trying to decide whether he was going to steal some bread. And it made him think of this old story that he had heard about a very well-off princess. And this princess had what a princess has. She had a kingdom, and she had money, and she had finances. And one of her advisors came to her and was telling her about the plight of the common people. And he was saying, the people are, are hungry. They've run out of bread, and they're hungry. And her response, out of what I assume is ignorance, is that she looks at her advisor and she says, well, if they're out of bread, then let them eat cake. If they run out of one food, then just let them eat the other food. And she didn't understand and couldn't comprehend that all they had was this bread and now they were out of it because she had plenty. 
She never knew what it felt like to be hungry. She never knew what it felt like to be unsatisfied because if she ran out of bread, she had cake. And if she ran out of cake, she had something else. And there was always more to be consumed. And when we think about those who are hungry, two words that would definitely not describe them now or in any other, wor- any other world or any other time period would be blessed and satisfied. But that's what Jesus says here in verse 21. He says, blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. And again, we see the kingdom of God taking the conventional wisdom of humanity and turning it upside down. Jesus talking to his people who, again, so many of these these people in the original audience would have known what it felt like to be actually hungry. And Jesus says to them, you may be hungry now, but just be patient because something better is coming. I'm bringing in a kingdom. I'm bringing in a kind of satisfaction that will never pass away. Jesus knew what it felt like to be hungry. During the season of Lent, we walk through Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. The readings from Scripture in the season of Lent go through Matthew chapter 4, where Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and to fast. And we see that there is a weakness in Jesus whenever he's fasting, because the very first thing that Satan tempts Jesus with is to take a stone and turn it to bread. And Satan thinks if I can just appeal to his deepest weakness right now, then maybe I can lead him astray. And so he says, hey, you're really hungry, and you've got the power to fix that. (laughs) But Jesus' response to the tempter is that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus says, I don't need that physical satisfaction right now because I have a satisfaction that comes through God, my Father. This isn't the only time that Jesus talks about hunger and the spiritual satisfaction that comes through this gospel message that he's preaching. We see Jesus describe himself as the bread of life. And that anyone who takes of him will never hunger again. Jesus calls himself the living water. And if anyone drinks of him, that they'll never thirst again. On the week that Jesus was going to be crucified for our sins, he sits down with his disciples for a meal, and he takes some bread and he breaks it. And he says, but guys, this isn't bread. This is my body, which is broken for you. And he takes a cup and he says, this is my blood that was poured out for you. Jesus is saying, listen, there are going to be times when you are physically hungry. There are going to be times when you are physically in pain, but because of your relationship with me, you will never be spiritually hungry again. You will never be spiritually thirsty again. Because I am bringing something better. And one day, this spiritual satisfaction will also find its fulfillment in our physical satisfaction as well. But then to the well-fed here, In the woe, Jesus says, woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. And Jesus looks at them much like he does when he talks about money. He says, you may be full now, but this can't sustain you. This is all temporary. That you can eat and eat and eat and be completely and totally satisfied, but then hours later you're going to be hungry again. And he says that something eternal has come into the world, and by that standard you are starving. 
Spiritually speaking, you are desperately hungry. And if you don't realize it now, if you don't deal with this spiritual parasite inside of you that is draining you and sucking the life out of you and causing you to fall into sin over and over again, if you don't deal with this now, then you're going to find yourself in a much more desperate situation than those who happen to be hungry at this exact moment. Because eternity is a long time to be hungry. When we talk about eternity, more often than not, when people talk about hell, they talk about the, the very kind of graphic pictures that we see in Scripture about a lake of fire and brimstone and sulfur and gnashing of teeth. But I think one of the most unsettling portraits of hell that we have in Scripture is when Jesus tells the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And in this story, you have Lazarus, who is is a poor man that sits at the table eating scraps with dogs. And then you have a rich man who has all that he could ever need. And Jesus says that Lazarus, because he trusted in Christ, because he trusted in God, because he had faith in God, when he died, he went to be with God. But the other man, because he built his kingdom here and now, and because all he cared about was his material life and the things that he had, and he didn't trust in God for anything, we see the rich man die and go to hell. And in that moment, we see this kind of spiritual window in Jesus' story where the rich man cries out to Abraham. He says, if you would just give me a drop of water, just give me a little something. And we see that desperation that Jesus is drawing that picture to because he says, listen, you may be hungry right now, but if you trust in Christ, then you'll be satisfied. And even if you aren't hungry now, if you trust in Christ, there will be a day when you never hunger again and you don't have to fight for your bread. You don't have to provide for yourself because God will give you everything you need for all of eternity. But he says, be careful if you are spiritually hungry now that you address that because that's what matters. And eternity is too long to be unsatisfied. Eternity is too long to be desperately trying to find that fulfillment and to realize that it can only come through Christ. Because Jesus, the bread of life, satisfies our most inward hunger. He satisfies that spiritual parasite that tells us that we need to just consume out of fear and out of desperation and allows us to be patient and to be trusting and to give all we have to Christ. If you're fasting during this Lent season or if you've ever found yourself in a place where you don't have much and you don't have what it takes to buy and to be fed, you know the feeling of being hungry. Being hungry is not a good feeling. We've even created a little word for it where we combine hungry and angry and we call ourselves hangry because it it brings out something in us that is desperate and rude and sometimes mean. And then once it gets to a real severe point, It becomes horrifying. But in those moments when you feel hungry, whether it's through fasting or or through circumstances or whatever it may be, remember that we are longing for a day when hunger is no more. That not only will we no longer be spiritually hungry, but we will no longer be physically hungry again. In Revelation, when Christ comes to make all things new, the first thing we see is what John calls the, the... wedding feast of the bridegroom. 
that when we're with Christ, we will feast with him. In fact, the first thing that Jesus did, one of the first things he did when he appears to his disciples after his resurrection is he sits down on a beach and he has breakfast with his disciples and they eat. And so there's coming a day when no one, no matter who, what we have, no matter what we don't have, will have that hunger, that lack of satisfaction again because Christ will come and make all things right and all things new and we will eat with our king forever. Jesus is reminding us here that in the kingdom of God that you may be hungry for a season. That you may endure hard times for a season. And sometimes those hard times may last a lifetime. But we can know that we are blessed if we are in Christ. Because no matter what we have, a day is coming when our hunger will end. And we will know a satisfaction like nothing this world can offer. And so again, Jesus is warning us about building our kingdoms on things that can pass away and to focus on the things that matter and the things that last for all of eternity. So he says, blessed are the poor and blessed are the hunger, hungry. And then in the second half of verse 21, he says, blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh. And then in 25, he says, woe to you who laugh now for you shall mourn and weep. I love stories like Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol or Roald Dahl's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory because these stories are really beautiful stories of people who materially have very little, but because of their family, because of their life, because of what the life that they've created, even though they have very little, they are emotionally very rich, and they're beautiful, charming, wonderful stories. But what about when your poverty isn't material? Because at the end of the day, money can be found or made. Food can be found or made. And if you don't have money or food, then there are organizations and systems in our world that can help provide that for people that are in need. But what about sorrow? What about for those that Jesus says here, what about when we weep? I would imagine that none of us here feel blessed when we weep. And that's such a strong word that Jesus used here. He doesn't even just say, blessed are you when you mourn, or blessed are you when you're sad, or blessed are you when you cry a little. But he says, blessed are you when you weep. And weeping is that deep, guttural, ugly cry kind of thing that happens that's brought on by circumstances and situations and pain that is so deep that the only thing our body knows how to do is just grunt and moan and cry. And it's that desperate, hyperventilating kind of thing that happens. And Jesus says, when you feel that way, when you're at that level of despair, you're still blessed. But what does this mean? How could we ever feel blessed when life is so hard that we are so emotionally and spiritually devastated that we find ourselves weeping? I think it's important to know that this is not a call to pretend that we enjoy sorrow. I think too often people look at passages like this in Scripture and that means to us that we have to feel like we are never emotionally vulnerable or weak. That there's never a point in our lives when we cry. That even when horrible, hard things happen, that we have to put on some sort of fake face and say, well, I'm just finding my joy in the Lord, and that is good enough, even though internally we are hurting and broken. This isn't a call to pretend that we enjoy the sorrow, but this is a call to look ahead. I love the way that Peter words it in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. 
He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Now listen to verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So the testing and genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter writes that letter to a church and to a group of Christians who are enduring persecution. And Peter says, listen, you can rejoice and you can have joy even in the midst of your sorrow and your suffering because even though you are grieved right now, even though you are sad and mourning and oppressed right now, you have this promise in Christ that you have been raised spiritually from the dead to new life and that you have an inheritance and a hope and a promise that is so big that one day your sufferings are going to seem very small. Maybe not right now. Because right now, maybe they seem like a really big deal. Maybe it's something that is life-consuming. But even if you suffer an entire lifetime, an eternity with Christ makes 70 plus years seem very, very small. And so Jesus is saying, I know that you may be hurting right now, but listen to me. I promise you that one day you will laugh. One day you will find joy. One day your suffering will come to an end. And if you trust in me, you will never suffer again. Yes, you may hurt now, but you belong to a kingdom. And one day there is a promise that that king will wipe away every tear and all that will remain will be joy in the presence of God. And so Jesus allows us here to fill our mourning to cry our tears and to experience that sadness and brokenness when it comes. Even Jesus himself, the author of life and the conqueror of death, when his friend Lazarus died and was laying in a tomb, we see Jesus weep knowing that he was about to bring him back to life. And so it is perfectly normal and acceptable when life gets hard to find ourselves mourning, but we must always remember the call in Scripture to not mourn like those who have no hope, but remember that one day our mourning will end. But on the contrary, Jesus says if you laugh now, be careful, because one day you'll mourn and weep. And just like we've seen with hunger, just like we've seen with with material wealth, Jesus isn't casting a wide thing, a wide net over anyone who laughs. So when I get up here and I preach and I, I say hilarious things and you laugh, don't worry. You can laugh. I know I'm funny. You know I'm funny. See, we're laughing now. And this is not condemning you to hell. We can laugh and we can enjoy ourselves. Jesus is not saying that anytime we laugh, we should be worried or concerned. But Jesus is casting a very important alarm here. Saying that if you are trying to find your full emotional satisfaction in the things that this world has to offer, you need to be very careful because all of those things have an expiration date. 
If you're finding your ultimate joy in your circumstances or in the stuff that you have or the experiences you have or the relationships you have, and if you are using those things to replace the satisfaction that you should be finding in Christ, then you are on dangerous ground because those things can disappear in an instant. But what Jesus offers is better. And yes, it may at times be harder for now, but remember, we're not building our best life now, but we have a better life to come. And no matter how good or bad this life may be, none of it compares to what's coming in Christ Jesus. And so because of that, this good news of the kingdom is great joy for anyone who trusts in it for all of eternity. And so we need to be careful where we find our emotional satisfaction. That yes, the things in our lives can be a part of that because God has given us our families and our church families. God has given us what we have. God has given us maybe jobs if you love your job or schools if you love your school or pets if you love your pet. I'm starting to really not love having pets, but that's another story for another time. They're just kind of in everything and my patience is wearing thin. But whatever it is that brings you that kind of joy, if we look at those as gifts from God in the proper perspective, then that's something good and should be celebrated. But if our ultimate emotional satisfaction doesn't come from Christ, then it is coming from somewhere that can't really give it to us. But also remember, when all those things may seem like they've passed away, even in the moments when we find ourselves at the lowest emotional and spiritual state that we possibly could be, we can remember that one day we'll laugh again. And there will be a day, one day, when we cry our last tears and we never cry tears of sorrow again because Jesus will wipe them away when he comes to make everything right and everything new and our joy will be complete. And then finally, Jesus says, Blessed are you when people hate you. And when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, so their fathers did to the prophets. Then 26 says, Woe to you, and all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And I know I'm guilty of this, and maybe you are too, but I often don't give words that much power until they really affect me. We can say the words don't really mean anything until somebody says the right thing or the wrong thing to us. And we're very aware of now how much words really mean. Because if someone gives you compliments, if someone talks about being proud of you, if they recognize something that you've done and give you credit for that accomplishment and start to glow you up, you start to feel pretty good. And you realize that words have the power to change your day and to make you feel much better. But on the other side, if you have someone who comes to you and says something insulting or something rude or you find out that someone's talking behind your back or that someone that you trusted is saying things about you that that hurt you and bring you down, you can find that one comment sometimes has the power to take a day that feels really good and bring it crashing to the ground. And in light of that, nothing in verse 22 sounds blessed. He says, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. And I just want to say, whoa, Jesus, those things sound terrible. What do you mean blessed am I when people hate me or blessed am I when people exclude me? It really hurts to be excluded. I want to be included on things. You don't want to be picked last. That never feels good. And so why would you say that it's blessed to be excluded or even reviled? That sounds like hatred, but with nausea involved. That just seems like a really bad term. So how could you possibly say that these are things that are being blessed? 
But he just keeps ramping it up, saying, on those days you should rejoice and leap for joy because your reward is great in heaven. See, we're reward-driven creatures. We like for people to see our accomplishments or see the things that are good in us and reward us with that, whether it's physical rewards or emotional rewards. And it's hard to do the right thing and receive no love. It's hard to live life the right way and not have people notice us. But even more so when we try to do things the right way and people's response to us is something negative. And then there's agony in that while we're trying to do things the right way and we don't receive the praise and the honor that we feel like we should get. And then someone doing things the wrong way seems to be reaping all the benefits. But Jesus says, why do you want that kind of reward? He says, these people that that reward that kind of stuff, they're spiritual descendants of the people who hated the prophets and, and spurned the prophets and listened to the false prophets who said whatever they wanted them to hear while they were leading them down a pathway to destruction. Jesus says, who cares about what those people say when people are saying things harshly about you when you are following Christ? Those people's opinion, it just doesn't matter. So why do you put any thought or effort into that? Because this is what your king says about you. That while you were yet a sinner, Christ loved you enough and considered you of enough worth that he was willing to die for you and to suffer for you. That's what you mean to your king. That you who were dead in your sins and trespasses are now alive in Christ and you can stand purified and sanctified before God with no guilt of your own because that's how much God loves you. That you who were once an enemy of God are now a child of God, welcomed into his family, and you have a hope for all of eternity with him. And so if that is what you have through Christ, who cares what you don't have in this world? He says he has a reward for you in heaven that will overshadow anything that anyone has ever said or done to you. And so in each of these blessings and each of these warnings, Jesus is saying you can leap for joy and rejoice in all circumstances, even when people reject you, because it's a reminder that God has accepted you. And there is no greater reward. And so, yes, in our lives, now matters. But we should be using our now to prepare for our later to do the work that Christ has called us to do, to love our neighbors ourselves, to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you have very little to trust in God through this season of having very little, knowing that one day you will inherit the kingdom of God. Maybe you find yourself in a situation where you have much and you should be thankful. We should all be thankful for all the good things that we have because the Bible teaches that every good and perfect gift that we have comes from God. And so everything that we have in our lives, whether it be much or little, is given to us by God. And so because of that, we should have that stuff and use it like members of a kingdom that is eternal. Being generous, being faithful, And using all that we have, whether it's our gifts, whether it's our emotional strength, whether it's our material or physical wealth, whatever it is that we may have, using that for the good of the kingdom of God and for the benefit of those in our lives. And we should consider ourselves, if we have trusted in Christ for salvation, blessed in any circumstance, because in Christ we have enough to be satisfied from this day for all of eternity.